Good morning, wherever you are, uh, especially to the few people who are here with me. It's good to have at least a few faces to, uh, to speak to. Um, we're all thinking about our mothers this morning. At least uh, Derek gave us some good reminders and thoughts. And you know, I was uh, thinking about Mother's Day myself this morning. And as most of you know, I have a, a collection of crosses on the wall in my study. And you might have noticed, I know you can't see on the video camera, but this little cross hanging there. This is probably the most special of all the crosses. Um, my mother passed away quite some time ago, and uh, then my father passed away, and I, I got a bunch of books uh, from, from his house when that happened. And one of the books I got was unexpected. It was the diary that my mother kept while she was sick. And the bookmark in that diary was this little hand-crocheted cross that she crocheted. And so this is a really special one for me. Um, so yeah, as Derek mentioned, Mother's Day is a day filled with many things to be thankful for and be happy about, but also filled with, with all different kinds of pains and sorrows. Uh, but that's, that's part of the picture. And that's, you know, maybe it's particularly appropriate on Mother's Day because mothers do tend to be the place where we, where we uh, bring our pains and sorrows as children and they absorb all of that. And, uh, and really uh, tend to live a very cross-shaped life in that, in that regard. So thank you, mothers. And uh, we're just going to take a moment to, to look at some of the biblical mothers, and I think this will help uh, each one of you will probably fit into one of the characterizations that's given here. So let's play that video. Motherhood plays an important role in the Bible. It binds the beginning and the end, these stories offer us a glimpse into the heart of God, and so we start at the beginning. Taken from the side of Adam, gifted with bringing forth life, the first woman was named Eve because she was the mother of all living. But she was also a mother in her own right, the first of many mothers to come. Though Sarah's womb was closed, God promised nations and kings would come from her. Ten years pass, and motherhood seems as impossible as the day it was promised. But the Lord is faithful to keep his promises, and Sarah bore a son who made her laugh. Leah was the firstborn, overlooked by her husband Jacob, who gave his heart to her younger sister. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb. Despite Jacob's disdain, she found her motherhood in the Lord. When Pharaoh became angry at the fruitfulness of the Hebrews, Jochebed sacrificed her motherhood for the sake of her son. When Pharaoh's daughter saw the child, she had compassion on him. Because of Jochebed's sacrificial motherhood, the Israelites found freedom. Naomi was a mother who experienced the loss of her sons, yet she gained a daughter in Ruth who declared, For where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Naomi and Ruth became family by faith. Mary, a virgin and not yet married, was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. The motherhood of this blessed woman was more than the continuation of a family name, but a means for God to bring a Savior into the world. 
to save his people from their sins. From the garden to the cross, there have always been mothers. These women paved the way for all women, representing the full spectrum of the ways one could be called mom. Whether a mother in faith, mentorship, adoption, or by birth, you play an important role in the stories of generations to come. To all the Sarahs, Leahs, Jochebeds, and Naomi's, Happy Mother's Day. It's been mentioned to me that Romans might be the most difficult book of all to do in one Sunday. And uh, I, don't, I don't really think it is, because it has a, a very clear... Um, theme or purpose, whereas some of the other uh, letters and books kind of go all over the place and are hard to figure out what the central concept is. And, and Romans is, though, very dense. Uh, by dense, I don't mean difficult to understand. What I mean is that you, you have to re read it verse by verse, word by word, passage by passage, because everything that you read later on absolutely depends on everything that comes before so it's very difficult in Romans to, to get a proper grip on what you're reading unless you've read the whole thing through to that point. And so um, it's just hard to, to pick and choose out of it like that. Um, but for that reason, it tends to be very intellectual. It's very mind-oriented. It's a continuous argument all the way through. Uh, but I think that the, the response that, that I had this week as I was studying it and, and seeking to understand what I should share with you this morning. and So therefore, the, the response that I, I'm hoping to uh, bring out of you is more of an emotional response than an intellectual. And so uh, there's a lot of intellect in this book, and we need to read it and understand it with our minds. But if it doesn't then translate into our emotions and, the, and then into our actions, it's kind of worthless. So I want to start with appeal to your imagination. I hope that you've all had opportunities from time to time to have an experience where your imagination kind of seems to explode, even if just for a moment. I don't know if that makes sense to you, uh, but, but let me share one such experience of mine, and then we'll, we'll see if, if you can bring to mind your own experiences of this nature. So, not so long ago, uh, well, probably more than a year by now, but I was in, in Langley uh, for National Evangelical Free Church of Canada board meetings. And I was just staying in a hotel in Walnut Grove. If you've ever been there, you know it's kind of uh, one of the, the more parkish, prettier parts of the Lower Mainland in terms of cityscapes. And I was, uh, I was uh, going for a walk after a day of meetings, and, and I was walking down the busy street, and I noticed just this tiny little gate. Uh, you know, the kind that you can walk through. Uh, it's almost like a cattle gate. You can't really get bikes or motorbikes through it, but you can walk through it. And it, it didn't seem like much. There was no sign or anything, but I went through it. And I very quickly found myself on a path um, very much like the one you see in the picture. I don't believe this is a picture from that park in Walnut Grove, but it's, it's almost exactly the same. I didn't take a picture. You probably know, as I do, that... When God created the world and put us humans into it, I think he created a spiritual connection between us and nature. 
And uh, I find, as I'm, I'm, I expect you do, when you get on a path like this with the diffused light and the nature and the trees and the vertical lines and the softness of the leaves and the hardness of the rocks all blended together, it opens up your, your spirit, it opens up your soul, it open up, opens up your imagination, at least it does for me. Um, it's very difficult to remain closed in my inner thoughts and struggles when I'm walking through the beauty of God's nature. It, it has that effect on me, I think many of you. And so I was, um, I was walking along, not really working on anything or thinking about anything in particular. And um, I came around a corner and just off the path, in the forest, about 10 feet off the path, someone had gone in there, uh, I, I suspect some children and parents, and they'd created what's probably the most, uh, the largest fairy garden I've ever seen. Now, we typically think of a fairy garden as kind of a little pot with, with a, you know, a, a, a shoe or a stump and, and some little models of fairies and gnomes or something like that. Well, this was different. This was about a, probably a 24, 20, I don't remember. It was, it's, it's more in my imagination than my memory. Uh, but but it, was a, it was a large area of forest that was all um, put together. There was, there was a stump that had a little door put onto it and a little gnome standing there welcoming you into his home for a, for a tea party. And there was a mushroom up high on the side of the tree with a little, a little tea set and a couple of fairies up there. And there was flowers and there was, like, it was just everywhere for, for this, this circle. And then in the middle of all of this was a little table and two chairs about the right size for a six or seven year old to have a tea party there. And, okay, maybe it sounds crazy to you, but I walked into the middle of that circle and, and just for an instant, my imagination took over and I was completely transformed into a different world, into a different location. I mean, I knew in my mind it was unreal, but, but it was so well done and I was in the right state of mind from walking through the forest. It was just like walking through a portal and just for an instant, it was like as if the real world just fell away and I was in this different place with different kinds of possibilities. I mean, the real world came back instantly and, and I could see how, how tacky some of the decorations were and all of that. But, but it, just, it was just one of those moments. And maybe, I, I'm hoping you've had moments like that. Maybe, maybe it's when you've come over a hill and you've seen the fields of canola and the rain's just gone by and there's a rainbow. And just for an instant... As you're driving along, it just seems like the world falls away and you're in a different space, a different reality, a better place. Or maybe it's when you've climbed to the top of a mountain. Or maybe it's, maybe it's when you've heard the laughter of your children. Or, or maybe it's uh, when you've been sitting by a lake and sitting in a lawn chair and reading a book and you look up and you just see the scene. And just for an instant, everything else is gone and it's just like you're in this this holy place that doesn't actually exist but you really feel a deep longing in your soul that it did exist well, I can't see your faces just a few a few masked ones here but but I I hope you've had that kind of experience and you know there's a phrase that's that's overused to the point of losing its meaning but it means something here in this context I think what we're experiencing in those moments is the God-shaped whole the realization that what we experience day to day in the struggles of life and in our own failures is, is not what we were built for. It's not what we were made for. And, and in, those, in those rare moments, 
It's like we're transported into a different reality where everything's the way it should be. And, and that's an expression of our inner longing for the way God made us to be in communion with Him and with His people in a, in a place that is free of sin and destruction. I don't know if I've got a hold of your imagination. I hope I have. Uh, we want to look into Romans now and see what it has to do with this because it has a lot to do with this if you've understood where I'm going. Romans doesn't leave us without clues. Right in the beginning, it gives us its own purpose. Paul tells us straight up why he's writing this book, why he's writing this letter. This is, of all the letters, this one actually could be called a book instead of a letter. Um, and he, this is what he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 15 to 16 and 17. I am eager to come to you in Rome, too, to preach the good news. For I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first, and also, also the Gentile. This good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scriptures say, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So three times in this statement of his purpose in writing Romans. He uses the phrase that here is translated good news. In some of your Bibles it's probably translated gospel. Uh, it's the same original word in, in these two different translations. And uh, essentially that's what the original word means is good news. Uh, gospel is more of a transliteration of, good, of, the, of the Greek word. But, but good news is what I'm using here this morning. What, what does he mean when he says this? Uh, I, I started questioning that, and I started looking it up, and I'll, I'll just tell you this. In Paul's writing in the New Testament, I got bored and thought I'd done enough when I found 170 instances of this phrase, good news or gospel, in his writing, in just Paul's writing. So I think I kind of got most of them because I used my Bible search and can see how much was there, but, um, but there's at least 170 plus references. So I want to just sample a few, and then that will help us, I think, understand what's happening in Romans. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 15, he writes it this way. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought the good news, and then traveled on to Macedonia. No other church did this. Now he's talking about the financial aid, but he kind of slips it in there, and I want to focus on that. What did he bring? He says here, he's just reminding them, he's writing to them and saying, I brought you the good news. It's kind of an offhand statement. So the question I have is, what is it that he brought them when he brought them the good news? Because we know that he stayed in Philippi for a relatively short period of time. Whatever he brought them during that period of time before the, the, the persecution and imprisonment came and he had forced out of town, was enough that the Philippian Christians were able to Without Bible college, without the New Testament, without an ordained preacher, without churches, they were able to figure out how to become the people of God and develop a community of God's kingdom in Philippi because of what Paul brought them. So what did he bring them? It's an important question. He says, I brought you the good news. 
in Colossians chapter 1, verse 23. But you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly on it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. So here he's, he's, uh, he's reminding them, like, like, I brought you the good news, now, now you seem to be drifting away, so, so remember that thing that I brought you, this good news. You heard it from me, and it gives you assurance. So what is it that, he brought, that, that they heard? What is it that they received when he came to them that he's now referring to? In 1 Corinthians 4, he puts it this way, or he references it this way. For even if you had 10,000 others to teach you about Christ, you have only one spiritual father. For I became your father in Christ Jesus when I preached the good news to you. So again, the question, what did he preach to them? I mean, it's obviously something pretty significant because through the preaching of this good news, he became their father. So something happened. Something extraordinary happened. A person they never knew before, they now think of as a father, and he thinks of them as their children after he's preached this good news. What was it that he preached? 1 Corinthians 15 will be our last reference out of the 170 plus we could look at. Let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you still stand firm in it. Now we looked at 1 Corinthians uh, not long ago, and uh, we know that the Corinthian church was not doing very well. They had a, a ton of conflict, a ton of controversy, uh, a ton of moral issues. They, they, were, they were really struggling. And so when he writes this, he's reminding them. And his, his, his uh, argument here, or his assumption here, is that if they remember the good news, it'll solve those issues. It'll solve their problems. It'll solve their conflicts. It'll solve their moral failings. It'll solve their issues. Let me remind you of the good news that I brought. Because if you remember it, and if you live according to it, it's going to get better. It's going to be okay. That's his solution to their problems. So now let's look at this summary statement in Romans again. So I'm eager to come to you in Rome to preach the good news, for I am not ashamed of this good news about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. The good news tells us how God makes us right in His sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith, as the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. So what is he saying? I mean, I can't read the whole chapter, so I have to... Uh, assume you're going to read it or have read it and just uh, tell you what he's saying, kind of summarized in these verses. He's saying, I've longed to come to Rome. I've even promised that I'm coming, but it turns out I can't make it. Why did Paul want to go to Rome? He wanted to go to Rome to bring the good news, to preach the good news. Because he's unable to go in person, he's decided instead to write a letter. And in that letter, he's going to bring them the good news, the same good news that he's brought to all these other places. So essentially what he's saying here is that the letter to the Romans is the good news. 
This is it. So whenever you read in those other verses, like Corinthians, which you just read, I, I want to remind you the good news. You should in, in our in our current day, what would happen is after good news, there'd be a little number, a little a little end note, and if you click on that number, what would come up? Romans. It's a summary word. The good news. I preached the good news. I brought the good news. I brought you the good news. I left you with the good news. Remember the good news. What he's saying here in Romans is now what I did in person in all these other places, I'm going to do in writing because I can't come and do it in person. This is the good news. Romans. So that whenever you read your Bible, you should have that in mind. When you come across this phrase, the gospel, the good news, it should click in your mind. Click on the link, up comes the book of Romans. Because he can't go and do it in person, he's going to do it in writing. What he did in all these other places, he's going to bring them the good news. So I think I can summarize uh, a little bit of what I mean. And I've put it in these words, uh, like this. In Romans, God says... My gospel brings into being a covenant community that can live out my kingdom on earth. Now Romans itself doesn't mention the kingdom of God very often. I, I actually haven't checked if it does at all. I can't remember a specific verse that uses that terminology. But I put it in this summary statement because what Romans does do is it connects everything about Jesus Christ to the Old Testament. And the Old Testament story is the story of God bringing His kingdom on earth. It's also the story of people messing it up so it doesn't actually happen or gets, gets sidetracked and all kinds of things. But it is the story of God returning things back to the way it was in the beginning in the garden or the way it will be in the new Jerusalem. And so in, in Romans he's referencing all of those points in the Old Testament. And saying all of these things God has been working at and preparing for are now fully fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And what that means if we understand the Old Testament is exactly, I believe, this statement. In the Gospel, my Gospel brings into being a covenant community that can, can live, by my king, sorry, live out my kingdom on earth. It's a bold statement, but I think it's true. I'm going to now quickly go through the sections uh, of Romans. There's several arguments that depend on each other. And uh, this is going to necessarily be a, an absolute whirlwind um, tour of these different statements in Romans. But, um, but we're just going to go through and, and you really do need to read it. This is a book you can read over and over again. And you have to read from start to finish because it's what every, every successive session in Romans, starts with the therefore, or because of what came before. And so to understand any part, you have to understand what comes before. Um, but we're going to go quick. 1 to 4 is the first kind of net, uh, section. You can kind of uh, see a specific argument that then moves on in chapter 5 to a new thing. And I'm summarizing it this way. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. And the concluding statement and the concluding verses of this argument, that's four chapters long, is here. God will also count us as righteous if we believe in Him, the one who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He has handed over to die because of our sins, and He has raised to life to make us right with God. 
So the revelation here is that we enter into God's righteousness and something new becomes possible that wasn't possible before. And it's important to understand, um, this is God's righteousness, not our righteousness. So it's not that our righteousness, and this is kind of the bulk of his argument, it's not that our righteousness earns us favor with God as, it, as was some people's idea through the law, but rather it's that God's righteousness becomes knowable in our experience because of Jesus Christ. So his righteousness becomes part of our lived experience through faith. In the next section, uh, chapters 5 to 8, the gospel creates a new humanity. And this is the kingdom stuff I was talking about in my summary statement. And uh, here again, we can't go through the whole argument, but it kind of ends in, in chapter 8, verse 37, 38, and 39. So we'll read that concluding statement uh, that, that comes out of the argument of the previous chapters. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither any height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now obviously we need to read the previous verses to put this into its full context, but the, the general conclusion that's being brought to, that Paul's bringing us to in terms of what is the good news of Jesus Christ, is that all of humanity has this longing to conquer. We know inside ourselves that things aren't right. We have that longing, as, as I mentioned in the imagination uh, part at the beginning, that, that every now and then we realize that if everything was right, it would be beautiful and perfect and pure. And then we snap back into real life where it's hard and full of sin and struggle. And what he's saying here is because of Christ, our faith in Him and then the Holy Spirit on our lives, it's actually now possible to become a new humanity that didn't exist before. A humanity that can actually conquer these things. Not just in a, in a theoretical sense, but in our lives, in our experience. In all these things, because of all these things, in chapter 1 through to chapter 8, we are more than conquerors. It becomes an actual real life possibility because nothing can stand in the way any longer. We now have the knowledge that this is possible. The good news that Paul is preaching and re referencing so many times, it's the most referenced thing, is that by being reconnected with God and His righteousness through faith, God brings His Spirit and it now becomes possible to live in that world that just for moments we have the full imagination of. The longing of our heart to be there in God's presence. Now to some of us, chapter 9 to 11 might seem like a bit of a detour, only applicable to the, the times when Paul wrote, because there was a lot of controversy between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. And it does seem, as you look through the history, that after he wrote Romans, that controversy diminished, because people understood what he was writing here. But, uh, but it is actually very relevant to us, as is becomes evident in this concluding verse. In, uh, in verse 24 of chapter 11, After all, if you were cut off an olive tree that was wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, 
How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? And the picture that he's playing with here and throughout the previous verses is that the presence of God or the work of God, sometimes referred to in the Old Testament as the root of Jesse, it, that's the root. It's Jesus Christ. It's from which all things that truly bring life come. And for many years, Israel was, was the, the tree and branches out of that root. And as they lose faith, they're cut off. And as others of Israel are, remain in faith, they grow strong. And, and so on, the story goes back and forth and back and forth. And what he's arguing here is that in Jesus Christ, something new happens. And that is anyone who believes in Jesus is grafted in to this root. And so what that means for you and I is that the Old Testament is now my story. It's my history. Now I might identify as a Ukrainian-German Mennonite in my ethnicity. I don't know what you, uh, what you identify as your origin story, your, your background, your ancestors. But in faith in Jesus Christ, that now becomes maybe not irrelevant, but much less relevant because my true ancestors are the people of God throughout history who've had faith. I'm grafted in to this root where true life, where eternal life flows through the sap and veins. And while I might be tempted to live out in my life the fruit of my own ancestry and my own parenting and my own issues, it is now possible I don't have to. I still have choices. But it is now possible to bear the fruit instead that grows out of this root, this tree that goes all the way back to Noah. And, and that's why he can say that I became your father when I brought you the gospel. Because the people said, my own father and mother are now not my true identity, my true heritage. I've been grafted into the branch that is that is Jesus, through Jesus Christ, that is the people of God throughout history, and that is my true identity now. That's who I am. And so therefore, Paul, as he brings the gospel to this people, becomes their true father. Because he brings them into the family. Now again, you have to read chapter 9 through 11 after you've read the previous chapters to get the full impact of this and let it wash over you. Don't, don't just read every little detail and try and pick it apart, but just read through and it will it'll just, Romans will just wash over you as, as, a, as a powerful wave that can change your life. Now we get to the last section. I believe Paul puts the most important or, or the summary verse right at the beginning of this section instead of at the end. And so uh, if you've been coming to our Tuesday nights on Romans 12, you know this well already. Uh, but this is kind of, I believe, the, the key place where the, where the rubber of the gospel meets the road of our lives, as it were. Notice it starts with therefore. You always have to ask, what is it therefore, therefore? Well, in chapter 12 of Romans, therefore refers to all 11 chapters before. Because of all of this, 11 chapters, because of that, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is true worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, 
God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. Everything before comes to this and everything after flows out. He goes on then in chapter uh, 12 to 16 and, and, and work out some of the practical implications of the gospel in our different relationships, uh, in our different parts of life and how, our, how we operate together in the church through our gifts and some of that. Um, what he's talking about in all of these chapters is Christian community. How we then live together in such a way as to demonstrate God's kingdom on this earth. The community of Christ, the body of Christ, the living temple, all of the different illustrations throughout this, the New Testament. The family of God is the most common. Romans, I mean, we could... I know a pastor, just to, just by way of, uh, I don't know, it just came to my mind. I know a pastor uh, in Wetaskiwin who spent five years getting through the book of Romans every single Sunday. And, and that's easily possible. It's dense. But the reason that's also possible, because if you go through Romans verse by verse, you're going to go through the whole Bible. Because if you, if you look at the, at the allusions and references that Paul makes to all the things in the Old Testament in Romans and bring them into your reading of Romans, it will become rich and deep and detailed. Because it's all there. It all comes together there. It's the fulfillment of everything in the Old Testament. The good news, as he says in the opening statement, is the fulfillment. So when, when we read the word gospel or good news in our Bibles, we we sometimes cheat ourselves by just thinking, well, yes, it does actually mean the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But what does that mean? Romans explains it. I believe this is what Paul gave them in conversations along the road, around their tables, as he stayed in a city for a month or two. And when he left, they had everything they needed to become the people of God on earth. They had their Old Testament. They had the, the, they had the understanding of what's all taught in Romans that helps them look back into their Old Testament and read it properly in view of Christ. And then they could live that out and become the kingdom of God on earth. He uses this word, urge. And I think that's important for us to realize because it would be easy to think that we've got it wrong because we're not that beautiful and perfect as our imaginations would hope that we were. Urge means that it, it's choice. You can do it or you cannot do it. All these things are true. And you put your faith in them and, and the righteousness of God is now your righteousness and, and you live in the power of the Holy Spirit that's been given. But you can still choose to go a different way. We can still, as a church, choose to go a different way. And so here at the, I think, the fulcrum point, he's, he uses this word, urge. He, the, the, the different translations use different words. Here he says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy. Another translation says, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercy. Another one says, I ask you, because of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice. 
Another translation says, I exhort you. It's a little stronger than asking, I think, but, but it still is a choice. I exhort you, I urge you, I plead with you. Don't just let this beautiful thing slip by and live your life as though it wasn't true. So how would we interpret that? Offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true, proper worship. I think bodies here represents your entire physical life on earth. It's a summary word. So we could, I don't know how it hits you, but let me, let me just read it a few different ways. Therefore, because of, because of this good news, because of this gospel that's been explained in all its beautiful, marvelous, amazing detail in Romans, I urge you, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercy, to offer your relationships as a living sacrifice. Offer your mothers, offer your fathers, offer your wife, your husband, offer your children, offer your brothers and sisters, offer your relationships as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is how you worship. This is what worship means. Therefore, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, offer your work to God as a living sacrifice. What do you do for a living? What do you do that makes you money? Offer it up as a living sacrifice. I urge with you, I plead with you. The gospel will not become reality in Wainwright until we do this. What does that mean for you? I don't know. You have to answer the question. You have to be challenged by the Holy Spirit who will guide you. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, offer your political allegiances as a living sacrifice. The solution to your problems will not come from there. They will only come from the mercies of God. And as we offer that up as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, we are worshiping we're putting him first before other things. And we're living by faith instead of by sight. And so often nowadays by fight. My brothers and sisters, I plead with you, offer up your hobbies to God as a living sacrifice. The things you do because you love doing them. Offer them up. Put them on the altar. My brothers and sisters, I urge you, offer up your reading and your viewing to the Lord as a living sacrifice. It's holy and pleasing to Him. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer up your church, your imagination of what church should be, what church could be, what church is, what it isn't. Offer it up to God. The sacrifice he's asking of you here is not to follow tradition and do the things you've always done. It's, it's to offer your life, everything that is part of your bodily existence on earth, to him. This is how you worship. No government regulation can take that away from you. Offer it up. All this is because of Jesus Christ.
It will be done. We don't have a choice in that part of it. If we don't do this today, when he returns, it will all be offered. But we won't have, won't have had the opportunity to live in the glory of worshiping him and the promises he's given for us to be more than conquerors. We've waste, we will have wasted days if we don't offer it up now. Inasmuch as we do not offer up the parts of our lives to him now, we will continue to live outside of that God-shaped hole. You see, he's calling us to something that's very unpopular in our day and age. He's calling us to a cruciform life. A life that is formed by the crucifix. A life that is formed by sacrifice. Because as I mentioned several Sundays ago, there is no true love without sacrifice. How do we know God is love? Because when he came to earth, he gave of himself and he sacrificed. Everything else disguises itself as love, but is actually selfishness. What the world defines as love in all the many books and songs that have been written is selfishness. True love comes through sacrifice. A cruciform life. Well, I started with a fairy garden, so I think I'll end there. What I'm trying to say here is this. I'm, 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 I know I'm, I'm switching now from your personal life to a, to a broader picture. How much of this is possible? According to Romans, it's all possible. The kingdom of God can become present on earth, not in its fullness, it won't be full until Jesus returns, but it be, can become present on earth inasmuch as his people, the church, follow through on the gospel. So what, it, what, what happens when people encounter God's people? When, God, when, when people from around encounter, maybe in this building, but most probably not, because most people won't encounter us here. But what happens? What is the experience of people that don't know Jesus when they encounter a group of us? You see, what, what Romans is telling us is that, that, that if, if we follow this urging, if we follow this pleading, if we, if we live out this gospel, then people will have the kind of experience that I talked about when I entered that fairy garden, only it won't be imaginary. They'll come into a group of Christians and they'll say, I had this longing, but I never realized it was actually possible on earth to step into the reality of that, of that thing that sometimes flits on the side of my eyes a belief, an understanding, an imagination that something better is possible. So, so there's, a, there's a, a fantasy story. Some of you will know this without me giving the introduction, but I'll give a bit of the introduction before I show you the, the look on a person's face. It's an it's a, it's a imaginary world where the world is dark and full of struggle. But the characters in the story encounter 
an outpost, a, a, a little spot where the evils of the world have not come in. And it's because the inhabitants of that spot are from across the sea. And in this uh, mythology, this imaginary mythology, across the sea is where heaven is. And so there's a little spot where evil doesn't touch. And when a person who's never encountered it, but just had those fleeting longings throughout their life, sees it, they, 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 they do a good job of depicting the look on the face. So let's just take a look at that and, and just imagine a time where we could be the kind of people, the kind of community, where God's kingdom is real enough, and not perfect, but real enough among us, that people experience an encounter with God's church like this. works well for some of you and probably not at all for others but the look on Bilbo Baggins face could you imagine if that's what people looked like when they encountered the church of Jesus Christ because that's what Romans promises Romans promises that we can be more than conquerors and that we can build the kind of community here on earth that reflects heaven accurately enough that when people see it, when people encounter it, they recognize that longing in their hearts that only in fleeting moments of imagination they've ever encountered. Paul tells us that's possible. Not only possible, but that is why we're here. That's our job. That's valuable enough to sacrifice everything else to achieve. I believe Romans is where, as I said, you could spend five years preaching because this is where all the things come together. The other letters in the New Testament are hugely important because they kind of illustrate to us how we struggle through this to make this a reality and give us direction. But whenever you read your Bible and you come across that phrase, the gospel or the good news, just imagine a footnote. And remember, if you click on it, it will open up Romans. I'm going to ask Derek to close our time together in prayer. not here, right? Mothers, thank you. You play an important role in the stories of uh, generations to come. Whether a mother by birth, adoption, mentorship, or faith, you're leaving a legacy for generations with eternal significance. As Marvin has spoke on this morning, we all have this duty to offer up our lives in sacrifice through love 
because where would we be without our God? We are just part of our families due to our mothers. God has made us his children. I hope that you've been reminded of the good news this morning, that the gospel brings us into being a covenant community that can live out the Lord's kingdom on earth. We are God's. Our roles, our bodies, our lives are all to be living sacrifice. Where would we be without our God's love, mercy, and grace? Let me pray. God, help us to be, a sac to be sacrificial in our worship of you. May our living be pleasing and honoring to you. Help us to love others. Make us a community that brings people in love with you. I just pray that you would go with us and go with other mothers today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.